0: I promise you this, you'll know all you need to know, as and if the need arises. Now, shall we keep our mysterious rendezvous? I know how to lie, steal, kidnap, counterfeit, suborn, and kill. That's my job, I do it with great pride. Hi everybody and welcome to another episode of the I the Intermillennium Media Project Podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and it's winter time. <laughs> the holiday season with Conan is behind us. It but the is... winter drags on.
1: Oh my goodness. The winter drags on, the snow piles up and freezes and melts and freezes repeatedly.
0: So we've spent much of the last couple of weeks digging cars out and watching them get buried again, digging them out again. So I figured I want to kind of lighten Ian's mood a little bit. Ah uh, yeah. So we took him to the Arctic.
1: Yay! <laughs> oh, we didn't you didn't just take me to the Arctic, you took me to the Arctic and threw in military espionage. <laughs> and
0: you spent the trip there on a nuclear submarine. Ah, yes. We watched 1968's (laughs) Ice Station Zebra, as directed by John Sturgis, adapted from the novel by Alistair MacLean. stars Rock Hudson, Patrick
1: McGowan, Ernest Borgnine, Jim Brown. My goodness, this has a cast. Doesn't it? This is a movie who, if you are a fan of any variety of classic films from this kind of era you will slide towards this gravitational well, and from there, follow everyone else in other directions too.
0: 1968 is one of those years that's a landmark year for certain kinds of movies. We talk a lot about 1984 because it it was a year of that sort at just the right time in my youth. But going back farther, we get to 1968, which saw the release of 2001 A Space Odyssey, Ice Station Zebra, and so many other impressive movies.
1: Wait, so, so are, we, are we implying that there's a 16-year cycle? Oh, maybe, maybe. We got to review what movies came out in the year 2000 <laughs> and what came in in 2016. That could be interesting. Huh. So
0: this is a movie that, that I have long enjoyed. I saw this on TV several times, I'm sure, when I was a kid, and I've watched it a number of times since then, and I know this isn't the first time that you've seen this movie. I showed this to you at least once before. You did
1: you you showed it to me in a on a wild day. <laughs> I do not know why. Probably it happened to have been recorded
0: by Artivo at the time, but I we think saw so. it on the day that we went to a theater to see the Fantastic Mister Fox.
1: Yes, and that just that means that this got really weirdly muddled inside my memory. This movie has had. I've remembered sections of it, but my goodness, that twists it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, watching a Wes Anderson movie will put you in a certain frame of mind that isn't necessarily the same frame of mind that you would normally have going into Ice Station Zebra.
1: But I'm going to tell you something in a similar way, Ice Station Zebra is a film about its characters. It is a drama film, but it is about the people. Very character And that does mean that I have lived with the idea of Wes Anderson's Ice Station Zebra for years, and it feels like it could have been.
0: It does. I know that we have talked about wanting a Wes Anderson reboot of certain things over the course (laughs) of the podcast, but this might have been the first time we
1: really talked about that. It is. We finished
0: watching this that night and imagined Wes Anderson's Ice Station Zebra. (sighs) Ah.
1: And this is, an, this is also a movie that passes the Lego test beautifully but weirdly because it is heavily – all of its sets are kind of plain. <laughs> because it is a character-driven thing, it is generic nuclear submarine. It is generic Arctic uh, ice station. Honestly, it, I feel like part of my mind is filling in geography on how the station is set up. Out of the thing, because I know that one's like locations better than this one, but it all still works. This is about the people. if I were matching it with a Wes
0: Anderson movie, though I station zebra could be part of the Steve Zisu cinematic universe. But can't you imagine the cutaway of the tigerfish, the nuclear submarine? I can
1: absolutely imagine the cutaway of the tigerfish. I can imagine the cutaway of the of the station. With all with its little loading bay and its little areas up above and such, I can see it very clearly.
0: And it is broken up into very discrete acts the way an Anderson movie tends to be. Mm-hmm. This is this is a very
1: three-act movie in that sense, because it has everyone getting on the submarine, everything going sideways while on the submarine, and then everyone at the station. And those are three. Kind of three distinct sections, I'd say.
0: Yeah, I would say so. And we have kind of a, a prologue as well.
1: Kind of setting up our different characters to start.
0: Yes, we see, we see Space MacGuffin yes. in the first shots of the movie. We get these cryptic shots of a satellite in orbit that releases a capsule which re-enters the atmosphere and lands in some arctic wilderness. And then we immediately cut to Rog Hudson in a pub getting a phone call and having to go meet somebody. Yeah. Hmm. And we don't even, they don't even make it clear who these people are. We know that Rog Hudson is getting a mission from someone who is his superior, who has gotten orders from people way high up in the chain. And later we find out that it's like the chief of naval operations and the president are behind these orders. But he's got these orders. And then in the next scene or so, we learn, oh, he's the commander of a nuclear submarine. And his mission is to bring someone designated by the British government. He's a commander of an American nuclear submarine. And there's someone the British government needs to get to the, the Arctic, because Ice Station Zebra, which is a civilian weather station somewhere in the, in the Arctic, located on the ice pack, there's some horrible disaster has happened. They're getting garbled messages from them. No one can get in because of a tremendous ice storm, something we can relate to uh, this week. Yeah. <laughs> and a nuclear submarine going under the ice pack seems to be the best way
1: to get someone up there quickly. So everyone, everyone get aboard your nuclear submarine. You have to go into dangerous water even for you, but you're the only one that can handle it. And you've got to. To it, this is this is presented as this rescue mission to start.
0: And it's very clear from the outset that there's more going on because there's a lot about his passengers mission that the captain, the commander of the submarine, doesn't know, but he knows he doesn't know, and the passenger is played by Patrick McGowan, mm-hmm. who's playing a sneaky secret agent type.
1: Yeah, classic
0: Patrick McGowan.
1: It This is this is Patrick McGowan almost risking doing a Patrick McGowan impression in his acting. I feel
0: this is squarely in the secret agent prisoner kind of mode of Patrick McGowan characters. Oh,
1: yes. And I love it. Patrick McGowan is one of those actors who can can step in and immediately play, of course you're looking at me. I'm here to be looked at. <laughs> and the fact that you're looking at me means I win.
0: <laughs> yes. It's I know that you believe that I am sneaky and duplicitous and can't be trusted. And I like that. That's yes. a win.
1: Uh, and he is, he is playing that so hard. We also get an entire group of marines now being stationed on this nuclear sub alongside the usual crew. And while they are underway,
0: they pick up two more passengers. They're given orders to make a rendezvous point and two more people come aboard by helicopter. Ernest Borgnine playing a Russian defector who apparently is an old friend of Patrick McGowan's. Mm-hmm. He is working in counterintelligence and secret agentness, but he's working for the West. He's the best anti-Russian Russian you've ever met, is how Patrick McGowan introduces him to the commander.
1: But that, like immediately the question is, why do we need Vassilov here on this rescue mission?
0: That is a fine question. Yeah. And, and by this time... The commander knows this is not a rescue mission. We've got, we didn't add any more doctors, but we did add a whole bunch of Marines and a secret agent, and now a Russian secret agent working for us. And Jim Brown playing a Marine captain who's been assigned to lead the group of Marines that has been uh, uh, put aboard. uh,
1: Arriving separately, Captain Anders is a strict no-nonsense man who is... Apparently much, much more ready for a very different kind of mission.
0: And they spend a lot of time just kind of letting us see what it's like inside this submarine. What the crew is like, how they behave, what kind of a person the commander is. I think that that was one of the draws of this movie. It was a a techno thriller of its time. Yes. And seeing the workings of a nuclear submarine and having them talk about the nuclear power plant and the its capabilities it wasn't it's not a a missile submarine it's an attack sub but it's fast it's nuclear powered and can go under the ice and doesn't need
1: air to burn for its fuel in terms of submarine movies which is a whole subgenre, but um uh (laughs) this one does a very good job of making the submarine feel claustrophobic but livable Yes, it is. There's a lot of us. There's probably more of us than on a standard mission in this in this submarine right now. It is tight, but you can walk around. You can get a corner to think in. We can have our little conversation on to the, off to the side. There's just enough space for someone to leave someone else's line of sight and, and the and both of them be worried about what the other one's doing. And that is powerful, especially when you are setting up something that is very much a, almost a mystery like learning the characters kind of moment. Where you get this like, every single person is doing something that makes everyone else suspicious and nervous about them. Our British spy friend is waking up very suddenly and pulling pistols out from under his, his pillow. The our, our Our Russian uh, defector is very interested in seeing the nuclear reactor of this sub. things like that. It's like there's there's just a lot of brilliant tension, and the setting helps that by focusing us, focusing us on the people.
0: One of the themes that I think kind of runs through this movie is about chains of command and Chains of command that have to interact but are completely separate from one another. We've got the naval operations chain of command, which gives the orders down to the commander and he has these things to do. We've got Patrick McGowan as the the secret agent who's called Jones, but it's very clear from the beginning that that's not really his name. And we've got the Marine chain of command, and it's almost like a game of Clue. More so than most mysteries are, in that we have certain amounts of imperfect information about each one of these, and it soon becomes obvious that somebody on board is a saboteur.
1: Oh, yeah. This is very much like Clue. That is an excellent comparison. But yeah, because as they are getting ready and they're going to try to, they're getting near their destination, they're going to try to crack the ice with a torpedo,
0: Yeah, because there's these great tense scenes where they're just trying to break through with the conning tower and the ice is too thick. So, oh, let's see if we can crack it with a torpedo.
1: And when they opened the tubes, they hadn't sealed properly.
0: The outer tube door was open to see when they opened the inner door. Something that is supposed to be impossible on a submarine. And is impossible if things haven't been tampered with.
1: Done. Dun-dun! Sabotage!
0: So they know someone is a saboteur, and the commander trusts his crew, and I think he trusts the contingent of marines that was put on board when they uh, got underway. But essentially we've got three suspects. You've got Jones, the British secret agent. You've got Vasilov, the Russian played by... Ernest Borgnine, and you've got this Marine commander, excuse me, this Marine captain played by Jim Brown, who nobody else has ever met. He says he was picked up in transit and given new orders to meet them here. He could be a replacement for the real commander who was put on board the submarine by bad guys to sabotage things.
1: And on top of all of this, there is a risk and a question of the fact that we could all be who we say we are and we've got an entire group of marines camping in one section of the sub and an entire group of sub crew in a different section who are each a little on edge because the other one's there right we've got people who might not be as willing to do this or might be just the the angry enough type of people in one sense Or might know what they're doing enough to be able to do this on another sense. And we could be wasting all of our time fighting amongst ourselves. Which adds this underlying tension that we could all be wrong. We could all be right. And that is, having even those two cards on the table is just as nerve-wracking too.
0: And it's a movie, it's a longish movie. But it's a movie that it's, it might seem slow-paced by today's standards, But that's because it takes its time in certain sequences to build so much tension. We have the whole long scene in which they're navigating under the ice pack, trying to break through, trying a different place, trying to break through. They spend a lot of time on that. And then we have the disaster with the open torpedo tube and the sub going down and trying to evacuate the, uh, the, the seawater While redlining the nuclear reactor, trying to get enough power to pull out of this dive. And those are gripping scenes, even if they are long, because they build all of that tension. Oh,
1: yeah, there is. That is an excellent section where it's like, yes, we've got all these questions. We cannot bother with any of them now or we're all dead. And
0: those are such cool scenes because they do show off the technology, they show off the amazing things that this nuclear submarine can do. But as soon as they manage to, to rescue the sub, uh, get it out of this dive, get the seawater out, bam, it's immediately back into the characters because it's Jones, the British secret agent, who is explaining how this was possible. I mean, the commander is saying, you know, this happened and this is not possible for this to happen on a submarine. And Jodes is saying, right, it's not possible unless it's been sabotaged, because you've got to do this thing here and you've got to change this thing here. You must connect the hydraulic manifold to the outside door mechanism so that the indicator reads shut when the door is actually open. The same sort of electrical cross on these two panels and the open position reads green when it should flash red. Then you plug up the inlet to the test cup with chewing gum, sealing wax, anything just so that it shows
1: a dribble and then you open the tube and good night. How did you know that sequence? Yes, and suddenly
0: you you know an awful lot about nuclear submarines, says the commander. Exactly. (laughs) And yet, That scene makes it clear to me that he's not the saboteur. Really? Because he seems so shaken, and it could be a double, triple bluff. Why would he give away the fact that he knows how to do the sabotage if he really was the person who did the sabotage? And we see him very shaken and needing a drink and all
1: that. But we saw him being the sort of man who appreciates being seen as the clever one.
0: Oh, that's right. But so he is, is that,
1: yeah. I mean, yes, being told you're doing a suicide mission is going to make you need a drink. But that's still a personality that would want to make sure everyone knows how it was done before he goes down.
0: And I think the commander is reading him well, so he continues to distrust him. As well as
1: continuing mm-hmm. to distrust Vasilov and distrust the, the marine yeah. captain, and me- yeah, meanwhile Vasilov's been running around the ship, looking at all the things, curious, and a plenty of places where people would rather him not be.
0: Right? Was it Vasilov with the chewing gum? Was it was it in the the forward torpedo bay? Was it Jones in the the wardroom with something else? Mm-hmm. It's very much a who's doing what on board here this is a movie that
1: will that will have our our interpersonal tension of this this mystery and this you know there's a saboteur amongst us it'll then cut very smoothly into everyone gathering around as they do the classic movie in a submarine thing of milking out brilliant drama from someone counting numbers loudly to a room and then the moment those numbers are done Everyone is back at everyone else's throat. It is it is brilliant.
0: And meanwhile, the the Marine Captain Anders uh, is a very strict officer. and makes a point of that. You know, he 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 judges an officer's failure by how much he is liked personally by his men, because his job is not to be liked. His job is to keep his men alive, and that means being really hard on them. And yet, could that just be a ploy to make sure everybody keeps their distance and doesn't examine his motivations and actions too much because he really is a spy? He's definitely in the running.
1: You are a very unlikable man. Good! No, that wasn't a compliment. Is kind of how the discussion <laughs> yes. boils down. And meanwhile, that's such a
0: contrast to the way that Rock Hudson's character, the sub-commander, works with his crew. In fact, even Jones early on remarks about how informal things seem to be and the commander talks about you know this many people in tight quarters we're kind of informal on a a first name basis with most of my officers by the way my first name is captain i love that (laughs) he delivers
1: that with a smile absolutely uh we're, we're talking about this being a tense film but it also it has its moments that are just just fun clever writing like that it has got some it's got some edge in multiple ways
0: And that's what's great about the commander as a character is that he is portrayed as this hyper-knowledgeable, hyper-competent, trusted leader. And he's so good at what he does and trusts his crew so much that he can afford to be a little bit relaxed. And be absolutely focused when he's trying to do something like save his submarine. But he doesn't have to exert power. He just has it. Yeah. And eventually... They do find a good spot and break through the ice and deliver Jones and Vassilov and the Marines to the a, a location near where Ice Station Zebra probably is, because no one's exactly sure, because the ice pack keeps moving. They kind of take their time in terms of the movie's pacing, finding it, and they have this scene where people are falling down a crevasse and they need to be rescued, all the... Showing you how treacherous this environment is. I think a lot of that is is cinematic show off, but it works. And it works. I don't think I would remove any of it. And
1: then we get, uh, finally arriving at the station, we find that it has been ransacked. Yeah,
0: it's been burned out and ransacked, and all the the personnel are dead.
1: There's a couple of very hypothermic survivors, actually. That's true. But they're in no condition for anything. They
0: they can't talk about what's happened. And Vasilov and Jones start having conversations back and forth about, have you found so-and-so? He's dead. Have you found so-and-so? There are specific individuals they're trying to find. Because we did learn that shortly after some event, a bunch of new scientists, quote-unquote, made their way to the station and were given immediate approval to go up there to conduct research. Mm -hmm. And there's essentially a, a scavenger hunt going on now in this burned out base. And finally, Jones talks to the commander and tells him what it is they're looking for.
1: That opening with a satellite in space, there was a capsule with a camera. A capsule of stolen American film in a British camera on a Russian satellite that went around the Earth taking pictures of all the missile bases in America, and due to an issue, all the missile bases in Russia. It just took
0: detailed pictures and locations of all the, uh, uh, essentially all of the North American and Eurasian continents.
1: Yep. And it's dropped its payload here.
0: Which I gather is not where it was supposed to uh to land, but there was some problem with re-entry instead of a uh instead of landing in Siberia, it landed in the uh the Arctic.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right, people. This is a Cold War submarine movie about people fighting over Google Maps. <laughs>
0: So, this is a powerful MacGuffin in
1: 1968
0: when we we didn't really have that kind of satellite surveillance.
1: This is a wildly powerful MacGuffin. You were describing this being a tech thriller before. It absolutely is on a different type of tech here. It likes showing off its submarine, it loves implying and talking about what this camera and what this MacGuffin is and risks.
0: Whichever side got this information, would have such an incredible advantage in the Cold War that it would destabilize everything. Mm-hmm.
1: And suddenly, the fact that there was a saboteur is even scarier. Suddenly, all these little pieces and all these tensions are flaring hotter as the hunt for this capsule is, is starting, and the fact that there still are a couple of survivors is a little bit ignored and a little bit secondary in a sad and unfortunate way.
0: Yeah, the re- rescuing the people at the base was clearly not anybody's primary objective here. Mm-hmm. Again, they spend a lot of time on this search throughout this base. And this works a little bit less than for for me than some of the extended sequences, just because it's not as interesting as... Seeing a nuclear submarine, it's not yep. as interesting as some of the treks across the ice. There's not as much going on. It's more spread out just so that you can have different people in different locations discovering different things at more or less the same time.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. The, set, the set's become a little blander because they've got to give everyone chance to pair off into little open groups and kind of discuss and share information. I do like the fact that as we're hunting for the capsule, there's a lot more fun handheld tech. Like, we saw the submarine. It was wonderful, beautiful sets. It had a very cool feel. When they showed where the reactor is, there's this brilliant orange glow coming up from the reactor room. things like that. But we get a lot more, like, handheld receivers with extendable antennas to be able to check for things. And beeping sensors that are attempting to triangulate where, where this capsule might have dropped. And there's just a fun gadgetiness iness to, to a bit of these scenes, I will say. And you're getting all the scientific equipment that's here that's still okay. And all of these, these little lab sets where they've got these burnt and destroyed. But still obviously originally useful things for this this research station.
0: Yeah, it is an, an interesting exercise in set design in that, in that way.
1: Yeah, a destroyed set means you have to build it twice. You build <laughs> it, what, what it would have looked like, and then you build what it broke. And so I will, I will give a lot of credit. They've, they did a great job with that. Even if they didn't have as much to work with in some ways.
0: And this is a movie, this section of the movie, I think, was definitely a reference for John Carpenter. When he was making The Thing, especially the sequences in The Thing where they go to the other base and find it destroyed. There's something about something terrible has happened in the most remote place you can imagine. That's just extra, no pun intended, is more chilling than most kind of investigate the disaster scene kind of movies. Yeah. It's not quite the same dynamic that you see in The Thing in that there are, they, they are. They have a nuclear submarine. They are, They have a way to get home, but still, something horrible has happened here, and we really need to find this film, or bad things are going to happen for the next for, for many decades now.
1: It's cold here, and we'd prefer if the war stayed that way. <laughs> so somebody find that now.
0: And there's a ticking clock throughout the whole search the station sequence because there's been this ice storm that has kept anybody else. From getting in but the ice storm is beginning to, to abate so eventually other forces are going to be able to make it here and it's clearing from uh, the west from the direction of Siberia so the Russians are likely to be able to get people here before more NATO forces are going to be able to get here from the east mm-hmm. and that's what happens yep Things things start to clear. These great scenes of first a flight of MiG fighters, followed by transports that are carrying Russian paratroopers. Yeah. And some great scenes of this this ghostly image of soldiers parachuting down out of the clouds as if they're just appearing. It's wonderfully shot. It's like, oh,
1: look, the ice storm ended and it's now... Raining enemy troops people <laughs> oh no
0: and those planes can carry a lot more troops than the little squad of marines that the uh, the submarine was able to bring and
1: as the the russian troops pull up and confront our main characters they find the capsule right so there's
0: this tense standoff where american and british group is trying to get the Capsule out of the ice where it's been frozen, and the the Russians are insisting that it be handed over because it is from a Russian satellite; it is property of the
1: USSR. Yeah, and and the wonder and and the response of absolutely, we will return your capsule once we have removed the British camera and the American film from <laughs> it. You can happily have your capsule back, and this standoff holds, especially when it said, "Well, yes, but the capsule's rigged to explode." So now we've got two groups fighting, playing hot potato with this capsule full of powerful information, and we're pretty certain someone on our American group's side is not who they say they are.
0: And by that point in the movie, we know who.
1: Yes. I don't think we should say so here. We're not going to.
0: We usually just give you warnings and we we don't necessarily avoid spoilers, but we're not going to say who turns out to be the
1: the undercover saboteur. But this sort of setup tells you that this is this movie keeps its tension going all the way to that point. Even when it it, it this is this is a movie that is not going to drop its tension for you. This is a roller coaster that only climbs the hill. (laughs) (laughs) That is a heads up for anybody. This movie doesn't have a lot of drops.
0: (laughs) Well, we do have release of tension in some of those earlier points where you know there's the the flooding and then that's resolved
1: there's the can we get through the ice yes eventually we can
0: i would agree. but it's it's still it's continuing to build
1: yeah i would agree but i feel like each of those has its own little secondary bump but that primary uncertainty doesn't get resolved till the end yep so it gives you other things to build and release but it doesn't release this tension line until the end <laughs>
0: And we've talked about the cast a bit. I think Rock Hudson is, he's doing a good Rock Hudson kind of job as the the sub-commander. And we've talked, of course, about Patrick McGowan. You know, Patrick McGowan is an actor we've talked about a lot on this podcast. I think, is he rivaling Bill Bixby? He might be. Given how much he was in uh, Columbo and, of course, The Prisoner and now this. I don't know that we're we're in danger of not being the Bixby boys, but the McGowan guys? I don't Uh know.
1: Yeah. I'll have to work on that. If they if they ever worked on anything together, we're doomed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but Ernest Borgnine, he just so perfectly cast. Oh my goodness! As, he is such a fun actor. He's a character actor who just exudes this. It's not exactly charm, but this is he's, he's great as these gregarious, garrulous characters who want to be liked. Sometimes they are liked. Sometimes they're trying too hard to be liked. Mm -hmm. And that works very well in this. Is he who he says he is? Jones vouches for him. But is Jones who he says
1: he is? He is just, he plays it so well. He is always popping in, popping up, moving around. He just, and even when he's not the character talking, you notice him. That is such a powerful thing. Having presence, but not overwhelming. And always just kind of, being there is, it takes a work that he is able to pull off so precisely with this. It is an excellent, excellent performance from Ernest Borgnine there.
0: And then we've got to talk about Jim Brown. Jim, and Jim Brown is another example of somebody making that jump from professional sports to movie career. In the last episode, talking about Conan the Destroyer, we had Wilt Chamberlain, professional basketball player turned actor for Conan the Destroyer. But here we've got Jim Brown, who after a a remarkable NFL career in which he was rookie of the year, uh, NFL champion, multiple years, NFL MVP. And then he started making movies and built a movie and TV career that lasted for for
1: decades. And he's able to just have he is a man with an interesting range of being able to play. Gruff but not oversell it.
0: He's somebody, if you kind of follow pieces of his career, he's somebody who developed his ability as an actor over time. And he, he started out doing very well in a limited range. And that range kept getting bigger because he was playing roles. He, in the, the dirty dozen and ice station zebra, and, and he was playing these kind of military, very disciplined characters who didn't have to express a wide range of emotion because that was the point of their character. And then it kind of expanded from there. So it's interesting to see someone learn how to do that job of of movie acting and being a movie star while on camera. Mm-hmm. And he went on to be in you know, several TV series uh, where he was you know, recurring characters for years. So, but this was an early role of his and i think he was well cast because he never seemed entirely comfortable and that was kind of the point of these characters who are supposed to be
1: suspicious exactly he he leans into he leans into it in the right way and
0: as you could probably tell from our summary this is a movie that it doesn't have very complex a plot especially for its running time especially for some of the long sequences it has Because some of what it is doing, a lot of what it is trying to do with movie making, isn't about plot. It's about showing interesting things. It's about letting characters take over the screen and yet still be surrounded by these weird environments and sets. So I think we might be heading towards our final
1: questions. We absolutely are at this point. So a screen or no screen? I say screen. I think this is a screen movie. I will say it's pace can be a little slow. It is a bit longer than I think it needs to be. And we've been singing its praises all throughout this this episode, but I will admit it 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 drags a little. Yeah. It, I enjoy that tension, but if you if you don't realize how long it is going to be to sit through this, this is your heads up.
0: It's one of those long movies that kind of knows it's a long movie. In that tradition of long late 60s movies, it has an intermission built in.
1: Oh, yeah. It's
0: got a, it starts with an overture and then you have the, the first half of the movie, then you've got an intermission and entreact music and then you've got the rest of the movie. It you ha, you, You're right that you have to be ready for something that's going to take its time to show you interesting things. Uh, it's not going to be a pull you in through dramatic action from beginning to end kind of movie. But I agree. I would say screen as well. It's worth seeing. It's fun to watch. And this is a movie, this was shot to be shown in Cinerama. Ah, yes. And I would love to get a chance to see this movie in Cinerama. There aren't too many Cinerama theaters left, but there are some in Cinerama for uh, anybody who doesn't have that background. It was a it was one of the things that movie uh, studios came up with as they were trying to compete more and more with television in the 50s and 60s it was originally a process by which the movie would be projected not with a single projector but with three synchronized 35 millimeter projectors giving you this giant seamless picture on this big wraparound curved screen and I can imagine some of these scenes, some of the scenes inside the submarine, just being surrounded by that. But I can imagine how desolate those Arctic scenes would seem, watching them in Cinerama, so in this
1: giant curved screen. This is—it implies that implies that this movie might be best best watched via a DVD player or like an Apple TV, HDMI plugged into your curved gaming monitor. And watched like that to recreate a miniature Cinerama experience. You
0: know that might. I wonder are the are the versions that we're getting the full Cinerama frame? I don't know. Mm. But I don't know. They sh- they should be. Those should be available. But I don't know if they are. Yeah. So this. That, but that there's got to be. be Cinerama prints out there that the Cinerama Dome in California and some others show.
1: But that might be a fun little side project for it us would. to see if we can't hunt down a Cinerama cut of Ice Station Zebra and see if the. Uh, See if the curved screens that you can get for some computers nowadays would give us the right effect.
0: That would be cool. I mean, the other 1968 movie we've talked about, 2001, A Space Odyssey, I think that was also shot for Cinerama. And that, of course, would be amazing. But I don't know. I think that there there are ways in which Ice Station Zebra would be more impressive to see in Cinerama. But we're both saying screen for this movie. That brings up our next question, and that is revive, reboot, or rest in peace.
1: Oh, this, this is an interesting one. So let's see. Um, revive would be continuing from this. I don't know how you do that. Yeah, I think-, I think that just kind of is a different movie about the end of the Cold War.
0: Yeah, there's a problem with techno thrillers in that the technology keeps advancing and the movies become these quaint period pieces. The idea of people struggling to get their hands on the physical emulsion film that was shot by a camera in space. You know, that wasn't a
1: big deal not too long after this movie was made. Yeah, not too long after this movie was made. And now we're dealing with, you know, I can pull up satellite image of where I live (laughs) from my phone, that's that's a big leap.
0: So, yeah, I don't know if... I can't imagine how you'd revive it. Yeah. Unless you just kind of tacked something on, and it was just... Like some of the att- revival or quote-unquote sequels we've talked about, like it was the sequel to War Games. No, it's just a bad hacker movie you decided to tack the name War Games on.
1: Exactly. So... I, I must say the idea of a reboot is very tempting, not just because the, uh, the, the joke we had early on about Wes Anderson's Ice Station Zebra sounds fun, but because this is a mystery movie. This is something where you tell me a Ryan Johnson kind of director <laughs> is doing a new version of Ice Station Zebra. I'm like, I'm in.
0: Oh, you want Benoit Blanc to be uh, yeah, on the submarine?
1: I, you get my, yeah, you get that kind of effect <laughs> yes. going on. That, that's this sort of movie. You tell me you've got someone who's able to to tighten up a bit of the long sections of this and give this a new version, Give give a couple of actors the chance to give that sort of claustrophobic, tense performance that this movie can offer, it might be amazing. I also think if you want to do a... Reboot, you could have fun intercutting a bit more things at Ice Station Zebra. Give us a little bit more of this running lab, nervous about all the new people, Hmm. going sideways, and parallel that with the rescue mission sub becoming nervous about each other. We've seen people distrust each other in the Arctic work before. You could have that. They didn't explore that part here. I think there's a lot of, a lot of meat on the bone here that could be <laughs> experimented with. And do you get the right director who wants that sort of story to play with and to make their own version of? This is an excellent example they could go with.
0: Would you want that reboot to be a period piece and lean into that late 60s Cold War setting and technology? Or would you want maybe different boundaries for what the sides are, and some different MacGuffin?
1: I think you, ha- I think keep it in the Cold War. Personally, I think, I think making it the period piece works a lot better because advances in technology and a few other things have changed enough key points you'd have to shift too much, and there's something about that. Specific time that lets you build this kind of tension in a way you can't in other scenarios. You've gotta, you've gotta build other systems in order to get that same co- sort of of distrust going on. That I feel like now, like a a, a different time period, you know, it doesn't offer you this. But the Cold War had such clear lines in terms of the sides. In that sense, you could have fun with it at least in cinema it was very a very sharp line at times and you could have fun in that for a movie
0: yeah if you were going to reboot it i think it does make sense to essentially do a new a new version but set still in that cold war setting the only other possibility to me if you were going to update it and this is something that comes up a lot when people talk about kind of reframing stories that are set in these remote arctic or antarctic wildernesses and that is what's the, the, the 21st century equivalent is probably the moon. It's hard to get to. It's unforgiving. It's terribly dangerous. Not too many world powers have the ability to even get there. So I could see making a moon-based zebra where there's oh. some MacGuffin that is near this moon, lunar research base and there's an American team and a probably team from the People's Republic of China who are racing to get there because they each have a claim on it. And it's super valuable. Whoever gets it first. That said, that's such a different movie. It, it almost seems hackneyed to recast it as a, a race to the moon.
1: There's pieces there that feel like it's a blending of 2001 and Ice Station Zebra <laughs> yeah. in a fun way, but a different movie. That's, yeah. a, that's a
0: good point. <laughs> yeah, they dug something up on the moon. We have to race to go get it. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's a fun combo, but it's. Yeah, I don't know that it works for this. My, yeah. my inclination here is to say to let it rest in peace. It's a story that is of a very particular time. And it's a movie in a kind of movie making that is of a very particular time. And those worked together to create this movie in a way that trying to redo it either as a reboot or as a revival wouldn't quite work. So I say mm-hmm. rest in peace, but it's a movie to come back to and enjoy.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm sticking with the revive because I want to see someone else take a crack at it. But I can understand like this for, for the flaws of length and pace that you that you get in movies of this era. It is great. And what it does do in terms of pace is so excellent. It's worth it.
0: Now, it's not a movie that was particularly successful when it was released. Oh, really? It cost a lot of money to make, and it wasn't super popular. It has, it's kind of grown in... Interest and popularity and appreciation over time.
1: Layers of fans have built up and melted in. (laughs) And new ones have been deposited upon it.
0: (laughs) And I kind of wish we had a good Howard Hughes biopic for me to show you as a follow-up to this. Because one of the biggest claims to fame this movie has is that towards the end of his life when Howard Hughes was in the... Cloistering himself away in a suite of rooms with tissue boxes on his feet and collecting jars of urine... He was like watching Ice Station Zebra over and over during this time because he was just obsessed by this movie. Oh goodness! I don't know that that's a reflection on this movie, but for I think that's why a lot of people have heard of this movie, even if they haven't seen it. Hmm. But I there I don't have a a. a uh, and Howard used biopic to show you. The Aviator is a good movie. It's, it's more recent. It's out of scope for our podcast, but it's a good movie. I thought about Melvin and Howard, and I might show you that movie at some point, but I'm not sure it's a good follow-up to Ice Station Zebra. Okay. So I've got something else in mind for our next episode. Oh, I'm scared again. <laughs> <laughs> Feeling a little chill, are you?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I am. Okay. Hmm. I knew what to expect with this one, but I'm not sure now.
0: Well, you'll find out because uh we'll be back in a couple of weeks with that episode.
1: Okay. Well, in the meantime, Dad, where can they find you? I can they, find. Do they, need, do they need to point the little device until the beeping gets stronger? <laughs>
0: yes. Yes. Use your your radio homing device and find me as by Matthew Porter. So you can go to bymatthewporter.com, dot com, bymatthewporter on Twitter, bymatthewporter on YouTube, where you can hear me ramble about newer movies. On the Draft House Diary, where I review the movies, food, and everything else about each of my many visits to the Alamo Draft House Cinema. And Ian, where can people find you? I can
1: be found as Itemcrafting on Twitter, Item Crafting Live on Twitch. I've got Item Crafting as my username on YouTube, and at Itemcrafting.com.
0: And you'll find the podcast at immproject.com. That's where you'll find all of our back episodes, including our discussion of two thousand one a space odyssey. And you'll also find a link to our YouTube page, a link to our Patreon. Thank you very much for anyone who's supporting us there. You help keep the podcast going. A link to our shop if you like coffee mugs and T-shirts and notebooks and other things like that. And you'll also find there our contact page. We'd love to hear from you. What do you think of Ice Station Zebra? What is your favorite movie set in the Arctic or or Antarctic? And also, if you go to our contact page, you will find our P.O. Box And the offer still stands that anybody who sends us a self-addressed stamped envelope at that P.O. box will get back stickers. Huzzah! But most important, thank you very much for downloading this. Thank you very much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.